0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Heart Tech. I am your host Mike and with me as always is my friend and co-host Sam. Good morning. Good afternoon, Sam.
1: Good afternoon and good morning to you. How's it going? I'm pretty good. How are you?
0: Sam? Sam, Waking up but really excited for this episode.
1: Yeah, it's gonna be a good one.
0: Yeah, so if we're ready, uh, Sam, go ahead and get us rolling.
1: Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. If you'd like to add to the discussion from this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can do so on our hardtack socials found via our link tree in the episode description. You may also email us at hardtackpod at gmail.com. Leave us a review on whichever platform you use to consume your hardtack and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you. Much of the details concerning the topic of this episode were found in John M. Carlin's Stemming the Tide, May 1965 to October 1966, United States Army in Vietnam, and link to the full text is available in the episode description. There are plenty of other sources listed also to include videos if you are interested in furthering your own research.
0: On January 8, 1966, at 09.30 hours Indochina time, salvos of American artillery, napalm, and explosive ordnance from B-52s rained down on an underground Viet Cong base believed to be a political headquarters. The location was the Hobo Woods of the Binh Duong Province in South Vietnam, 70 kilometers north of Ho Chi Minh City. It was about to become host to a seven-day joint mission executed by the United States, Australia, and New Zealand but these allies soon discovered that the assumed headquarters held a much more surprising secret, a sophisticated underground logistical tunnel system spanning over 200 kilometers. This is Hardtack, Episode 18, Vietnam, Operation Crimp. American ground troops first arrived in Vietnam on March 8, 1965. Marines of the 9th Marine Expeditionary Brigade deployed to Da Nang to protect an airfield under threat from Viet Cong. However, the United States had a presence in Vietnam well before 1965. The U.S. provided funding for French colonial war efforts until their eventual defeat at Dien Bien Phu in May of 1954. After France's defeat, they withdrew from Vietnam entirely. The U.S. did not immediately move in to take France's place. Instead, the U.S. continued to provide funding for a stable South Vietnam under President Goh Dinh Diem. However, prospects of South Vietnam survival deteriorated, and the U.S. began the Vietnam Advisory Campaign. The campaign took place between March of 1962 and lasted until March of 1964. It wasn't until 1965 when South Vietnamese efforts really appeared to be on the verge of collapse and Saigon ready to fall that the United States pulled the trigger and deployed combat troops to Vietnam. As we can see, American involvement had been going on in Vietnam for some time before 1965. Direct military involvement? continued until March of 1973. At the onset of Operation CRIMP in January 1966, joint military operations among the United States and its allies in Vietnam had been minimal in size. Operation CRIMP changed that, and at the time of its execution, was the largest joint operation in South Vietnam. The participating units in Operation CRIMP were the American 1st ID, 3rd Infantry Brigade, 173rd Airborne Brigade, and the Australian 1st RAR, for a total of about 8,000 troops. Let's take a closer look at the units involved in Operation CRIMP.
1: Australia participated in the British Commonwealth Occupation Force, or BCOF, in 1945 and sent three regiments to Japan. They were formed towards the end of World War II from Australian divisions stationed in New Guinea and were formally designated as the 65th, 66th, and 67th Infantry Battalions. The battalion's new names, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Battalion, the Australian Regiment, respectively, were given on November 23, 1948. King George VI granted the prefix Royal on March 31, 1949. The 1st Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment, or 1 RAR, was based at Holsworthy Barracks in Sydney prior to its departure. The battalion reached Vietnam between March and June of 1965. It was transferred to the province of the U.S. Bien Hoa Air Base. The U.S. 173rd Airborne Brigade's 3rd Infantry Unit was assigned to it. At first, 1 RAR's duties were limited to airbase defence and security activities. However, these limitations were relaxed by the Australian government in September 1965, allowing 1RAR One to function completely as a maneuvered battalion. It took part in patrolling, security operations, and search-and-destroy missions. The Beyond House airbase surrounding area saw an all-time low in enemy activity thanks to the 1RAS patrol operation. Early in 1966, wan became involved in Operation Krim. In the Hobo woods in the, in the north of Saigon, this was designated a search-and-destroy operation. The infamous Kuchi Tunnel Network was discovered by wan during the operation. Thousands of documents, guns, and supplies were found after the tunnels were searched. Because of its effective patrolling strategies, the US 1st Infantry Division requested that Wanra take part in Operation Rolling Stone from the 19th to the 26th of February. A road was being built by the U.S. Army engineers who were protected by the battalion, and the battalion eventually returned to the 173rd Airborne Brigade.
0: Overall operational planning, command, and execution of Operation Crimp was assigned to the United States Army 1st Infantry Division, also known as the Big Red One, or the Bloody First. The first ID was founded 105 years ago on May 24, 1917, and first saw action in World War One. Their motto is, no mission too difficult, no sacrifice too great, duty first. First ID has remained active since its founding and has participated in every U.S. war and numerous U.S. military operations outside of actual declared war. The First ID is garrisoned at Fort Riley, Kansas, under the command of Major General John V. Meyer III and Command Sergeant Major Christopher L. Mullinax. Big Red One first arrived in Vietnam in July of 1965. And saw action within weeks of deployment though the division arrived in the seventh month of the year the unit participated in three major operations by the end of 65 the first quarter of 1966 was no different first id kicked off the new year and participated in operation marauder operation marauder took place from january 1st until the morning of january 8th operation crimp began one day before marauder officially ended Just to clarify, the assault on the Hobo Woods did not occur until the 8th, though the operation officially began on the 7th. So movement was initiated and the American and Australian troops were underway. It is clear that the 1st ID was gainfully employed, but it was not just the Americans with their noses to the grindstone. Australia's 1st RAR and New Zealand's 161st Artillery Battery also participated in Operation Marauder and elements of each were assigned to CRIMP. Major General Jonathan O. Seaman, later promoted to the rank of Lieutenant General, was the commanding officer for Operation CRIMP. However, General William Westmoreland, Commander of American Forces in Vietnam, granted Major General Ellis W. Williamson overall responsibility for formulating and executing Operation CRIMP as it applied to the 173rd Airborne Brigade. The best way to look at it is that Seaman had overall operational command authority for CRIMP, while Williamson focused on the airborne aspect of the operation. Dividing the ground and airborne elements enabled both officers to narrow their focus for the operation. Opposing American and Australian forces in Operation Krimp were the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army 3rd Cuyet Thing Battalion, the 7th Kuchi Battalion, and the 306th Local Force. In all the research conducted only one commander was listed for the Viet Cong and his rank was quite low for a battalion commander, let alone for a brigade or division commander. Captain Nguyen Ton Lin, was the only name that I found associated with Viet Cong leadership during Operation Crimp. I found it in two locations. The first was in Carlin's book, though Lynn was mentioned as a lieutenant at the time. The second was in an old newspaper dated Friday, October 4th, 1977, called The Dispatch, which was apparently a publication out of Lexington, North Carolina. It has been digitized and uploaded to the Google News archives, and I'll leave a link in the episode description. To diminish the risk of editorializing, please keep in mind the information we are providing here is, of course, oral history from 1977, and authenticity cannot be confirmed. The article is written by Peter Arnett, an AP special correspondent. What I gathered from the article is that Mr. Arnett interviewed a woman named Harriet Linnell, whose husband, Lieutenant Colonel George Eister, was killed in early January 1966 by a sniper hiding in a tunnel complex. The article in the newspaper says of Captain Lynn, quote, The slightly built 45-year-old Captain Lin said he was commander of the Coochie Liberation Battalion at the time of the American colonel's death and recalled receiving intelligence reports about it. End quote. What we have here is an old newspaper article that provides at least one Viet Cong name relevant to Operation Krimp and the tunnel complex. We will come back to this article later for some insight on the tunnels from the Vietnamese perspective. Like the gaps in intelligence concerning Viet Cong leadership, so too are there gaps in troop strength estimates. The U.S. and Australia claimed that Viet Cong and NVA troops numbered between 1,000 and 5,000, and that's not exactly what you would call approximate. However, I think it is fair to say that the fighting which occurred in the tunnels during Operation Crimp definitely made enemy troop strength difficult to discern. The enemy base in the Hobo Woods shared its boundary with the west bank of the Saigon River. The area around the river was open, though near the bank it became dense with overwhelming jungle vegetation. 3rd Brigade, commanded by Colonel William David Broadbeck, was tasked with conducting operations in the southern sector of the Hobo Woods, and Williams's 173rd Airborne were to operate in the north. Eradication of enemy units was the mission for both groups. However, the 173rd had a special task. Remember, Williamson was given his own operational autonomy, and this was to accommodate the 173rd's goal of finding the assumed command headquarters.
1: So B-52 strikes began at 0930 hours. Broadbeck's 3rd Infantry Brigade concurrently began convoy operations towards the western edge of the AO, which they reached around noon. Two of Brodbeck's battalions deployed to the assigned southern sector of the Hobo Woods by helicopter.
0: I have to ask, because I thought about it when I was doing the research, I know that 173rd is an Airborne Division in and of itself, but I have to wonder if they didn't receive an assist from the 20th Special Operations Squadron, Operation Pony Express, from two episodes back, because they actually began operations in Vietnam in 1965.
1: It could be one of their um, operations that just wasn't disclosed, I guess. That would be Yeah, as we
0: knew, their their operations early on uh, were kept secret, so I suppose... At the start of 1966 and Operation Cramp, their existence was probably still pretty low-key.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In a nutshell, January 8th can simply be described as uneventful. No contact was made. American and Australian forces moved in reached their assigned areas of operation and prepared for further advance. It is difficult not to think that the bombing from the B-52s initially pinned down the Viet Cong and NVA forces who, unbeknownst to the approaching 1st Division and 1st RAR, were tucked away in the tunnel system. Contact was first made on January 9th, though it was minimal. Americans had discovered a medical outpost. The medical supplies, 4,000 pounds of rice and a small field hospital were all destroyed and the approximately 30 Viet Cong manning it were taken prisoner. The trend continued into the 10th when a small base camp was located. It was quickly overtaken by 3rd Infantry Brigade forces after a negligible firefight and subsequently demolished. However, rather than destroy the spoils of the fight, 20,000 pounds of rice were captured along with over a dozen bales of cotton. Again on the 11th, there was no change. The 3rd advanced in character, capturing and destroying bunkers, houses, supplies and of course food. The night of the 11th was the end of Colonel Broadback's 3rd Infantry Brigade's participation in Operation Crim. The 3rd Brigade did make one notable find. In a tunnel complex, they found a cache of NVA and Viet Cong maps, charts, and documents. In just three days, they had searched the entirety of their assigned sector of operations and cleared it of enemy presence and assets. In fact, Enemy presence was so minimal, more hit and run than actual engagement, that more men died from Viet Cong booby traps than actual gunfire. However, this was not unexpected and had been predicted by American forces in planning for Operation Crimson. Lieutenant Lin confirmed the prediction in a later interview. Lin stated, quote, We waited until they, the Americans, were very close. We were in our spider hole firing positions. The Americans never saw us at all. I ordered my men to fire. One GI fell down, the others just stood around looking at him. They did not even know where the bullets had come from. We kept on shooting. Although their fellows kept falling down, they kept on advancing. Then they called for artillery. When the first shells landed, we simply went into the tunnels and went on to another place. Obviously outnumbered and outgunned, Lynn knew that the surprise attacks and high mobility was essential to inflicting as many casualties as possible on the 3rd Infantry Brigade. When the 3rd pulled out of crimp, the Viet Cong had killed six of their men and wounded another 45. Viet Cong deaths at the hands of the 3rd Battalion totaled to 22 confirmed kills. Wounded numbers remain unknown. But what of the 173rd Airborne Division and the 1st RAR? What were they up to while the 3rd advanced in the south?
0: Let's check in with them. The 173rd and the 1st RAR initiated movement around the same time as the 3rd, on January 8th. General Williamson wanted to maintain the tactical surprise often associated with airborne operations and insertions. Whether or not the airborne leg of the operation remained secret is unclear, though there were indications that a security breach had occurred. At 0930, when the B-52 barrage began, Colonel Priest's 1st Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment, initiated air operations, flying in behind the B-52s, who kept possible ground fire at bay. The first RAR made an uncontested landing at landing zone March. LZ March was inside of an old rubber plantation. The first RAR landed, dismounted, and began moving east to their assigned position. Resistance here, too, was minimal, at least initially. Just after 12 o'clock noon, the first RAR moved into an area littered with booby traps and mines. It was an ambush. As the Australian troops navigated the sabotaged terrain, concentrated small arms fire, rifle fire, and mortar rounds rained death on the unsuspecting men. However, the Australians were far from beaten. As the fury of battle increased and the hours stretched into the late afternoon, the 1st RAR made progress, leapfrogging from enemy position to enemy position into the night of the 8th. It had become clear that the Viet Cong were fighting, quote, obviously in defense of something of great value to them, quote. To the southwest and west of the 1st RAR, the 173rd landed two infantry battalions at landing zones April and May at 1200 hours, and at 1430 hours. The two battalions quickly advanced from their LZs to the designated target area, but found no enemy presence, and it was believed that the Australians had run them off. The two battalions established defensive perimeters as the sun began to set and pulled security operations. And then things got really interesting. From Carlin's book, quote, During the night, the Australians heard sounds of scuffling and digging and saw shadowy figures emerge from the undergrowth and slip away. It seemed to them that they might be sitting atop a major enemy complex, perhaps the very one they had targeted. But, unable to distinguish friend from foe in the darkness, they held their fire. End quote.
1: So they are potentially awfully close to some enemy targets and they had no idea about it
0: yes and as we will find out later the scraping and scuffling that they heard uh, was obviously Viet Cong in the tunnels when the sun rose searches took place it was then that the australians discovered a sophisticated network of tunnels leading into the rumored headquarters however it had been deserted it held a trove of intelligence contents included approximately seven thousand five hundred documents There were working files on political and military command, Communist Party members living in the area, data on the command's organizational structure and staffing, and the biggest prize, a breakdown of what Viet Cong and NVA leadership knew about American efforts in the Army of the Republic of Vietnam's 3rd Corps. Enemy leadership knew a great deal. Detailed maps of friendly installations, units assigned to those installations, and even in-depth rosters of Americans living in Saigon the last item of significance was a journal of a Viet Cong political officer who had written a history of insurgency from the mid-1950s to the first quarter of 1963. The notebook became known as the Krimp document. It was deemed the, quote, real treasure of the operation.
1: That is some significant intelligence that they found. Like, it makes you wonder, how did they manage to get that kind of intel on the Americans and Australians?
0: Right. So a lot of the intelligence was gained by observation, but also in Vietnam, a lot of the intelligence was gained from villagers. So even in South Vietnam, the Viet Cong had villagers that were not necessarily sensitive to the Viet Cong cause, but Mm. under threat, had to provide that information. And we we saw the same thing in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq over Mm. the past 21 years.
1: Oh, okay. So they weren't necessarily providing intelligence because they were sympathetic to the cause. It was more so, you know, you need to give us intelligence, otherwise, you know, we'll kill Uh, you. Under threat of death, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: There were definitely individuals in South Vietnam that were sensitive to the Viet Cong and NVA cause. So Mm. it went both ways.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course.
0: The remainder of the 173rd was in the South and had not fared well in their endeavors. It was not a matter of combat deficiency, but rather a matter of minimal combat. Like the first days of the 3rd Infantry Brigade's participation in Krimp, 173rd saw scant enemy resistance and spent most of their time advancing from one abandoned or minimally manned position to the next, destroying buildings and supply caches. General Williamson ordered one battalion to change direction in hopes of locating some enemy presence, and did make contact on the 10th. A company sized force of Viet Cong, about 200 or so, made contact and were met with an onslaught of artillery and airstrikes. Twenty-nine Viet Cong were killed, and that was enough for them to withdraw. The pattern persisted until the 14th, when General Williamson terminated Operation Krimp and all units involved returned to Bien Hoa. At the conclusion of Krimp, the Americans and Australians had confirmed kills for a combined 128 Viet Cong regulars and an estimated 190 more. American and Australian losses totaled 23 killed in action and 102 wounded. Viet Cong manpower had been reduced, enemy operations in the area and supply caches neutralized, and a wealth of intelligence information obtained. Operation Crimp was an undisputed success. But what of the tunnels that the Australians found? It was mentioned earlier that Captain Lin had provided insight into the tunnel system during his interview. Get ready for this one. The tunnel system turned out to be a labyrinth of over 200 kilometers and contained three separate levels. A German reporter named Foss, who later saw a map of the full system, and the Coochie District Headquarters said that, Quote, it looked like a map of the New York or London subway systems, with dots not for stations, but for fighting positions and secret entrances and exits. End quote. During interviews, Voss was told the system took thirty years to build. Lin was quoted as saying, We dug usually in the dark, squatting down. We carved out a meter every eight hours, and women distributed the earth on the surface, hiding it under fallen leaves. This was a massive feat for Viet Cong forces, and I think that the manpower requirements working conditions, and time it took to build is a testament to their efforts. Life in the tunnels was not so safe or peaceful, however. U.S. soldiers described living conditions in the tunnels as the black echo, highlighting the darkness, emptiness, and reverberating sounds of the hellish labyrinth. The Viet Cong had scant air and none of it fresh. Supplies of food and water were short. Worse still were the vermin and insects that shared the tunnels with the men. As one can imagine, American air raids kept the Viet Cong in the tunnels for sometimes days at a time, and in such close unsanitary quarters, illness was ever-present, malaria most significantly. Dubbed the Kuchi Tunnel Complex, the system still exists today and is now part of the tourist route for visitors to Vietnam. The tunnels, of course, had to be explored, mapped, and cleared, a task that fell to a group of men that came to be known as tunnel rats.
1: Tunnel rats, who were made up of engineers, volunteer infantrymen, and chemical weapons experts, had a specially difficult mission. The tunnels, built by the Viet Cong, weren't generally large enough for the average size male to fit into, considering the fact the Vietnamese men were on average a lot smaller in build and in height compared to the average American or Australian soldier. Tunnel rats were armed with M1911 and M1917 pistols, along with bayonets, flashlights, and explosives. Their task, as Mike said earlier, was to infiltrate the tunnel complexes, eliminating hostile occupants and gathering intel along the way. This task was not for the faint-hearted. It wasn't as simple as climbing down a ladder and walking through some tunnels. These soldiers were crawling on their hands and knees through small and tight spaces, contending not only with the Viet Cong but with tunnels booby-trapped in mines, hand grenades, and pungi sticks. And for those that don't know what pungi sticks are, they're booby-trap stakes. Um, and for reference, like I found this image online that showed these stakes um, would be buried in these holes in the ground, which was then covered in bark, sticks, and leaves to kind of camouflage it.
0: Right. And then unsuspecting individuals would drop down into the pit Mm -hmm. and become impaled on the stakes.
1: Yes. Very brutal brutal and gruesome um, death. Um, I feel like you wouldn't even be so lucky if you got severely injured because that would be very, very painful if you survived that. Um, there is actually a short documentary on, I watched on YouTube that was done by Discovery UK that kind of showcases the Viet Cong tunnels and traps. Um, and I linked it in the episode description if anyone's interested. Um, towards the end of the clip, they actually showed one of these Punjai stick traps. And essentially, this trap, as I said, was covered in leaves and bark. You would fall like two to three meters and like fall right into the stakes. So it's like you'd be just walking and you would just, like, you just wouldn't see it. Like you'd just be walking and all of a sudden you'd fall right into it. These things were super dangerous. So tunnels would also be home to, as well as um, illnesses like malaria, as Mike mentioned, but also poisonous snakes and scorpions and other animals, including rats, spiders, ants and bats. So not only did they have to contend with the tight spaces and engaging enemy forces in close combat fighting, but also animals that can kill them or like spread diseases that should they be bitten by them. So even going back to the pistols they used proved quite hazardous for the soldiers. Um, and what I mean by that is the, the muzzle actually produced loud blasts, and it was amplified by the walls and tunnels and temporarily de- like deafened the soldiers after each shot. Not only that, several of these tunnels also had sharp U-bends, making it easy to be flooded to trap and drown soldiers as well. Poisonous gas was also used by the Viet Cong, prompting some tunnel rats to go into a network of tunnels with gas masks. Though wearing gas masks presented a whole new set of challenges for the tunnel rats. Gas masks made it harder to hear, see and breathe, especially in the more narrow tunnels. So this led to some soldiers entering the tunnels without them, taking into consideration the risk that should they be met with poisonous gas. Harold Roper, a tunnel rat in early 1966, recalled, quote, I felt more fear than I've ever come close to feeling before or since, end quote. If we rewind the clock, tunnel warfare was especially prominent throughout World War I. As an example, the Allies built a massive network of tunnels throughout the Belgian Erp salient just as the Germans did on the other side. Typically, German tunnels of World War I would lay mines beneath Allied forces in tunnels, and as brigades walked above, they would be triggered and exploded. This led to the Allies assembling their own special units of tunnelers, who were tasked with doing the same thing, but of course against enemy forces. Tunnelers, at least on the Allied side, like the tunnel rats in Vietnam, were also not done by ordinary soldiers but by miners and engineers. Tunneling was not an easy job by any means. Those who dug faced long, dark hours underground, with the risk of being buried alive should the tunnels have collapsed or were exploded by enemy mines. The Germans proceeded to construct counter-tunnels in an effort to destroy the Allied shafts, but the technique used by the Allies, was quiet and considerably more rapid. To hear the Germans working and conversing, the British tunnellers would therefore leave some, someone below with a stethoscope pushed to the wall, and the more noise they made, the better, because they were probably laying a mine. And so when the Germans talked seas, they could tell what was actually happening. Tunnellers would also be met by poisonous gas being poured into the tunnels when miners were discovered, accompanied by cave Now, obviously, the European landscape and weather are completely different from the environment of Vietnam, but the psychological impact on soldiers remains the same. I mean, just imagine it yourself. You're on your hands and knees in a really tight space underground, and not only is your life threatened by cave-ins, but you could also be faced with close combat fighting, a booby trap mine, poisonous gas, limited air, and the list just goes on.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned the weather uh, being different, and I actually looked up weather reports for the first week of January, second week of January 1966, in Vietnam. And what I came to find was that the insects, the rodents, the illness, and the airflow were all influenced by the weather. Mm. According to the weather reports from January 1966 and around Ho Chi Minh City, temperatures were almost consistently in the mid-90s Fahrenheit and remained in the high 90s nearing 100 between March and May. So the humidity, the moisture in the air, and the glaring sun did little in easing the discomfort of those in the tunnels or those American and Australian troops above ground tasked with clearing them. And Sam, you sent me that photo of that one tunnel rat, Sergeant Payne. Do you remember that?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: You can actually see in the image, right, that he's stripped off his uniform top, his shirt, he's covered in dirt, and he's squeezing to a very small space, at least in that one photo, and he's got his flashlight and his pistol. And I can't imagine how uncomfortable he had to have been knowing that I got death in the tunnels below, but... Also, the, the air outside, the humidity, the temperature, it what a yeah. miserable living so, situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, if it's seriously that hot on the surface, I mean, I can't even imagine how much more hot it would have been underneath, like even if he had his shirt off or whatever, like that would have been very uncomfortable, limited airflow, as you said, illnesses, rodents, insects. There was just so much that they had to contend with. I can't imagine psychologically how they would have dealt with that in the moment, but also afterwards.
0: Yeah. The the sheer panic somebody would have felt maybe a uh, little, little PTSD possibly being yeah. in, a, in a tight, confined space would surely bring back memories of their experience in those tunnels with all the creepy crawlies and everything else in between.
1: And it's just like, I don't know about you, Mike, but I'm incredibly claustrophobic. And what those soldiers did was incredibly brave. And I'm sure critical to the efforts of Operation Crimp. I don't know if I could ever do something like that. So, wow.
0: No, definitely. Definitely not my my choice of assigned task. All right, there we have it. Hardtack Episode 18, Vietnam Operation Crimp. That one was really interesting to me, Sam. Um, I know that I expected it to be very combat-oriented uh, when I first started doing the research, but really the tunnels along with the psychological aspect and then the intelligence gathered.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I certainly have to agree. I mean, I don't know if you in the research process um, saw the, uh, I think there was like a really detailed map of the underground tunnels, how complex it really was. Like it wasn't just a simple hole in the ground um, and just one straight line tunnel there was literally a network of it on the ground and a lot of the Viet Cong operations was solely based in those tunnels and it was just incredible seeing it laid out like that in an image i'm not sure if you saw it but it was it was just incredible
0: i did see that it's not not to give too much credit to the Viet Cong, right but
1: oh um, yeah no no <laughs>
0: they uh their efforts what they built truly amazing truly amazing and <laughs> The tunnel system actually ended up back in Viet Cong hands. And it was the Mm -hmm. basis of Viet Cong operations for the Tet Offensive in 1968. Mm. So these tunnels were were critical and and did continue to get used. All right, folks, you are definitely going to want to tune in next week as we welcome back a special guest. Returning to Hardtack from all the way back in Episode 3, The Great Emu War, is our friend Warwick. I know Sam's excited for that. Keep an ear out for episode 19, The Tragedy of the Sandakin Death Marches. As always, thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hardtack dry.